Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Charles Fain Lehman. Charles is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. His work focuses on a, a variety of issues, policing, public safety, uh, drug abuse, and uh, he's, he's appeared in a number of publications, including The Atlantic, Wall Street Journal, National Affairs, National Review, and of course, City Journal. He's discussed public safety policy before the House of Representatives and the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and is a 2023-24 Robert Novak Fellow with the Fund for American Studies. Today, we're going to be discussing his recent writing on the nation's increasingly dire crisis of drug overdose. Uh, so, Charles, great to have you back on 10 Blocks. Absolutely. Always glad to be here. Uh, so... You know, this, this current crisis does seem a little different, at least in the way it's being perceived to pass drug crises. Uh, you know, when the chief impact or the focus was on social health or, or individual health. Uh, so, you know, whether this was physical illness, social dysfunction, frayed relationships, public disorder, all of that's part of what's going on today. But as, as you've been emphasizing, uh, you know, the the real outcome is death um, in, in a striking way. Fatal drug overdoses have risen exponentially over the past, you know, decade and a half, probably, maybe a little longer. Um, they're now the leading cause of non-medical death in the United States. I think the number is over 100,000 people uh, died from overdoses last year. So, you know, what in your view, to, to start off, uh, explains this sharp um, increase in overdose fatalities. You know, there's a there's sort of a contingent reason, which is that we're in the middle of an opioid overdose crisis. Um, although we'll talk about in a second, there's also methamphetamine. We're in the middle of an opioid overdose crisis, and the OD death risk from opioids is higher than from stimulants um, because of the mechanism of action suppresses the central nervous system, reduces breathing. Uh, you fall asleep, you don't wake up. Um, and that is contingently a function of the spread of supply from the explosion of supply in the licit market at the turn of the millennium, facilitated by big pharma and ethical practices and prescribing a story we all know. But that's sort of the seed in one way. What really, to mix the metaphor, lights the fire is there's been a dramatic transition in the kind of drugs that are being sold. And in particular, the kind of drugs that are being sold are now highly potent synthetic drugs. Here I am talking about, many people will probably have heard of fentanyl, which is a highly potent synthetic opioid, a variety of variants of fentanyl, drugs like carfentanil or sufentanil, um, but also methamphetamine, which is much more potent and much purer. And that reflects upstream in the drug supply, in the American illicit drug supply, a change in how the producers of those drugs produce drugs, where once historically, for most of modern drug history, those drugs were produced organically. They were grown in fields and then refined. Uh, that's actually not true of methamphetamine. Methamphetamine is recent, but all opioids, cocaine as well, um, grown in fields, refined, uh, and then shipped across the border. And today... Most drugs are synthesized in a laboratory. Um, and as a result of that, you can get a much more potent product, you get a much purer product. 
yeah, you can get the products much more reliably, much more cheaply. Um, and so American illicit drug markets have been swamped by uh, a wave of incredibly potent product at very low rock bottom prices. Um, and as a result, people are consuming it. And many of those people are unable to dose precisely enough to avoid overdose, which is which is a problem intrinsic to the potency of these substances. And so they die much more frequently than they would have 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so that that number is right, though. Uh, it's over 100,000 last year. It's over 100,000, um, probably for the past two years. The 2022 figures are preliminary, and it's likely to stay at or around that level uh, for the foreseeable future. Well, um, you know, one approach to this, in fact, it's probably the predominant approach, has been harm reduction programs. You know, these uh, operate needle exchanges. They set up safe consumption sites. The proponents of these strategies claim that we can cut down in the number of overdoses by encouraging safer use of these illicit substances. So, you know, what does the increased lethality of the drugs that you've just described suggest about the effectiveness of, of harm reduction? Can you really utilize these drugs in a safe way? Well, it- I mean, the short answer is no. And, you know, I think I think the reaching for harm reduction by some big city, big state executives reflects a dearth of other ideas about what to do. Um, but, you know, the, the, the pitch, as you've alluded to, of, of harm reduction interventions is you can reduce the riskiness inherent in any given use session. Therefore, you reduce the risk of overdose death. And we now have a fair amount of high quality research. We have research on naloxone distribution. Um, there are recently a couple of studies looking at the number of supervised consumption sites they've set up in Canada. Um, and overwhelmingly, pick your intervention, they do not have an appreciable or statistically significant impact on drug overdose death rates. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, in in, in some senses, these, these interventions are, are band-aids. Um, if you talk to few advocates of supervised consumption sites, they'll say, well, nobody's ever overdosed a supervised consumption site. And that's probably true, certainly true with illicit ones, um, as far as we know. Uh, but that doesn't mean that people don't then leave the site and continue to use compulsively, uh, including not at the site, not under the supervision of others, and that's when they overdose. And the thing about overdose death is you only need to overdose once to die. So no matter how many times you are dosed with fentanyl supervised consumption site. If you aren't dosed once, there's a risk of death, an appreciable risk of death. Um, in other words, harm reduction interventions do not address the underlying risky behavior, which is the addictive use of lethal substances. Uh, and insofar as they don't do that, we shouldn't expect them to have an appreciable impact on overdose death rates. And the evidence seems to say that they don't. Um, and so as a result... We're in the situation now where these uh, services are the front line in some jurisdictions for combating the drug crisis, even though they aren't particularly efficacious, but they do soak up large amounts of uh, public funding, uh, in part because anyone who opposes them is framed as you know regressive and opposed to uh, solving the problem and wanting people addicted to drugs to die. Uh, what you know? What's a, a saner alternative here? You know, that's that's the million-dollar question. Um, I think that it is not an easy answer, and people are still trying to figure it out. I have written about 
when when you think about drug policy conventionally, we talk about the four pillars of drug policy, um, which are which are enforcement, uh, prevention, treatment, and harm reduction. And the, you know, there's there's a place for harm reduction properly understood within that framework, but it's not. It can be the only pillar, which is part of the problem today. Um, but you know, I think my argument has been the two components of that that we are sort of on the silence about that we aren't doing enough about are a treatment and b prevention um we talk about treatment uh we still have a very patchwork system of treatment there's a great deal that we don't know about where people are in treatment if people we there's a lot of evidence that people are not getting the treatment they need and treatment as unreliable as it is it is is the only tool that we have for getting people to stop using substances that are likely to kill them um, so there are lots of steps we need to take in that domain. And then prevention, you know, I like to say it's a little bit like, uh, the screenshot from the Simpsons. Uh, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. Um, it gets a bad rap because dare was less than effective in the eighties. But the reality is we have some idea how to do prevention. We had a great deal of success doing teen smoking prevention over the past several decades, but there's a lot that we still don't know about how to do primary prevention and how to do targeted prevention. Which sort of just at the front end of that, the research isn't very good. And so I think that there is, there's, uh, it is worth investing a great deal more in that than we currently do uh, with the aim of, you know, the, the reality is if you don't initiate drug use by the time you're 25 or really 30, depending on the substance, but certainly 25, you're almost certainly not going to initiate drug use. And as a result, the more you can prevent young people from consuming drugs, the more you can persuade them not to consume drugs, make it harder for them to obtain drugs, the lower your stock of users is going to be, the lower your overdose death rate is going to be. You um, you recently traveled to Portland, a city that's become known for very severe homelessness problem and addiction uh, crisis. Uh, this, this you did to report a story for us for our summer issue, which was really terrific. Um, in 2021, more than one in every 2,000 residents in the surrounding county of Portland died from drug overdoses. You know, this was most often from fentanyl and meth uh, that you had mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, two years ago, Oregon decriminalized the possession of illegal drugs entirely, making it punishable by just a maximum fine of $100. You know, I I, I wonder, you know, if you could sketch uh, what you saw in Portland and what lessons we should take from this state's experiment with decriminalization. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you alluded to, there's a very visible homelessness crisis, at least when I was there. And I was told by basically everyone when I was there that it was actually better than it had been, which was shocking to me because, you know, there were many blocks that were lined with tents, just people living out consuming public consuming drugs publicly um uh frequent public disorder frequent public disturbance frequent public untreated mental illness uh all of these are very visible problems in portland at present and they're really struggling to get under control um you know i think many people as there argue to me i think correctly that the underlying problems were exacerbated by COVID and interventions focused on COVID. If you empty out your shelters, people have to go somewhere and they end up on the street and then it's hard to bring them back into shelters. That's a real problem. Um, but it's clearly the case that uncontrolled public drug use, open air drug use, uh, about which the police could not do anything was 
exacerbating the public order problem uh, was was making it worse to be on the streets of Portland. As you know, as you alluded to, the most they can do is issue a ticket. The ticket doesn't ever get paid, and nobody ever calls the hotline uh, to to that is associated with the ticket to hear about treatment services because there's no compulsory element. Um, and so as a result, the effect is mostly that people are less inhibited in using drugs and using drugs openly. Um, there's a live empirical debate about whether or not this has raised overdose death rates. Um, my read of the literature is it is more likely than not that it has raised overdose death rates, but there is room for debate. Basically, nobody at this point will argue that it has lowered overdose death rates. Um, this, by the way, is sort of what you see across decrims uh, in other decriminalizations in other political contexts um, is that mostly they have no effect uh, or they can have an offset. They, they can be offset if you substantially increase treatment at the same time, which Port which Oregon didn't do. Um, and so, you know, I think it is it is almost certainly the case that uh, a the city has been left with no tools to combat public drug use and all the harms that attend. Um, the the mayor Ted Wheeler, who's a progressive, has been trying to get a, a public use ban. Um, there's been big, in the process of a big fight about that. And then B, it is almost certainly insofar as it is facilitating continued drug use, uh, it is it is making the lives of the people who are using worse, uh, up to and including quite arguably increasing their risk of death. Um, turning to New York, uh, in 2021, the city became, I think, the first in the United States to to supervise consumption sites. Uh, and this is where anybody can go to use controlled substances, uh, again, under the, you know, the supervision of, of staff, trained staff. The organization that operates these, I think it's two sites in the city, claims that its staff members reversed more than 1,000 overdoses during the first 18 months that they were running, and that the city should open more of these sites. Uh, you know, what's your view of these these supervised consumption um, efforts in the city, and have they had an appreciable impact on overdoses in New York? Yeah, you know, A, I think that the best evidence that we have is they are not having an appreciable impact on overdoses in the city. Um, I've produced some data looking at the borough level, our friends of the Greater Harlem Coalition, recently published some data looking at trends at the neighborhood level, showing that East Harlem has seen a precipitous increase in overdose deaths uh, since the supervised consumption site there was opened. Um, I looked at data, and I published in City Journal, I looked at data that the site itself released uh, that was then forwarded to me, which showed you know they, they handle a certain number of visits every day, uh, but that vi that number is almost certainly only a, min a minuscule fraction of the total number of use sessions that occur in any given uh, day. Um, so they are not actually supervising most of the drug use that goes on around them, which means they aren't going to have any meaningful impact on the overdose death rate we shouldn't expect them to. Um, lots of cities have scaled. Uh, I was just yesterday in Vancouver where they have 12 overdose prevention sites, uh, which... Ten of them are clustered in the major Skid Row area, the downtown east side. I was also told by a former city official that there are probably another 20 that are operating illicitly. Um, the downtown east side has one of the worst drug overdose death rates 
in North America. It's very hard to argue. Um, and again, we have we have now sort of high quality evidence that there's really no effect. Um, so we shouldn't expect there to be much of an effect in New York of opening one of these sites. Um, what it does make you to do, you know, Charles, do they have what? What's the effect on the surrounding neighborhoods that these these sites are situated in? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, so so what what they do appear to do, uh, and this varies by site. There's some evidence that. For example, the first Vancouver site, Insight, which is really the one that's best studied, did not have an appreciable effect on public order. Uh, there's been some evidence out of Alberta that says their supervised consumption sites did have a dramatic effect on public order. Um, I've talked to the folks at the Greater Harlem Coalition who have done their own survey uh, showing that, yes, the supervised consumption site in East Harlem is a dramatic hotspot, a magnet for disorder. And there are a host of reasons for that. Um, if you concentrate people who use drugs in one place, you're going to concentrate drug dealers who are not great guys. Um, you're also going to create a space that is defined as safe for drug use, and so people will be more likely to use there. And so I like to say, you know, there are there are economies of scale to this kind of thing. Uh, two people who using drugs together is different from 10 people using drugs together. There are more than linear effects from that. Um so, you know, they're, clearly you're going to have disorder spillovers. The other thing that I would flag, by the way, is that supervised consumption sites are usually justified as disorder reducing, or excuse me, as, as yes, as disorder reducing uh, insofar as they get people off of the street to use drugs out of sight. And my view is if they actually did that, I would be very much more sympathetic to them. But they mostly don't do that. Uh, mostly, there is no police presence deterring public drug use otherwise. Mostly, they're seen as part of a broader infrastructure of benign neglect that tends to take over neighborhoods that are dominated by drug use. Hmm. Um, a, a final question, and this is a bit narrower, over the past couple of years, xylazine, which is a horse tranquilizer, um, you know, has made its way into the U.S. drug supply. It's now commonly laced with fentanyl to extend its effects. This, you know, this tranquilizer is a non-opioid sedative. I, I guess it enhances drugs toxicity. Um, you know, this I imagine must be increasing the risks of overdose significantly. Um, and, you know, what is being done about it? Not a huge amount. Um, as you alluded to it, uh, so xylazine is added to increase the quality of the high fentanyl a fairly fast-acting high xylazine extends that um because it's a sedative uh it also is seriously debilitating continuous continual xylazine use leads to these horrible gaping sores that necrotize and don't heal um it's really quite bad uh you know i think some cities have started trying to roll out xylazine testing services but we know from the literature on fentanyl test strips that they don't really deter use um, they just, they inform people about use, but they don't really change their behavior. Um, uh, and we should expect the same thing to be true of xylazine. You know, the reality is xylazine is a response to demand. It's improving the quality of the product from certain perspectives. Uh, and so insofar as cities are just trying to harm reduce their way out of this problem, they're not really going to be able to get at it that way. There is no, there is no naloxone for xylazine. You can't over, you can't reverse it. Um, so really all you can do is in jurisdictions that don't yet have it, try to differentially enforce against it, really target drug dealers who are lacing the xylazine for aggressive punishment with the explicit message that 
uh, you will be much harsher on them. Um, and jurisdictions that already have it really need to focus on treatment and prevention as tools for getting people to not be exposed to the drug supply at all. The, and, and all of the cannabis legalization that's been going on in, in municipalities, um, what kind of an effect is that having on, on in, you know, some of these more serious uh, drug problems? You know, that's the, that's always the million dollar question. The, um, the, is, is, is marijuana a gateway? Um, it's hard to assess empirically. There's lots of evidence in either direction. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's fairly, what is persuasive to me is that it seems unlikely that marijuana is making the situation better. Um, there was some argument that marijuana legalization would produce marijuana as a substitute for opioid use, which would reduce addiction. We now have a fair amount of evidence that says that's not true. Marijuana legalization may be associated with a slight increase in opioid overdose deaths, but that's a little ambiguous and depends on specification. Um, you know, I think what I would say is that you can situate marijuana legalization alongside a host of other changes in our attitudes towards drugs. And here I'm talking about on the illicit side, marijuana, but also the growing tide of psychedelic legalization that we're in the middle of, uh, but uh, uh, increases in, in illicit drug use, but also increases in illicit substance use. Um, Americans are consuming far more pharmaceutical medication, uh, including amphetamines than they used to, than they have in the past 20 years. Um, and that to me represents a substantial shift in our attitude about substances generally. When you read the history of drug use, so when you read the history of drugs in America, we go through these sort of waxing and waning cycles where uh, we, we, we get very excited about drugs, we are very sanguine about drugs, we try them, we discover the effects, we go, wow, that was a bad idea, we crack down on them. And then because we crack down on them, we forget how bad they were. Uh, and so we go back to using drugs. And it, is, it seems to me that we are in one of these, uh, we're in one of these upswings again. Um, where in general we are much more willing to try addictive psycho psychoactive substances than we were 30 years ago. And to that I would add, and this goes back to marijuana, the, the corporate element of it is stronger than ever. Um, the capability of businesses to profit off of addictive substances is stronger than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago, which uh, adds sort of a new dimension to a new a new extent of that the the phenomenon uh, adds to that. All right. Well, that's a good note to end on, or a troubling note. Um, don't forget to check out uh, Charles Lehman's work on the City Journal website. That's at www.city-journal.org. You can find him on X at Charles F. Lehman, and we'll link to his author page in the description where you you'll be able to find his work. Uh, you can also find City Journal on Twitter or X at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. And as usual, if you like what you've heard on this podcast, please give us a nice rating on iTunes. And, and Charles Lehman, thanks very much again for that uh, illuminating walkthrough. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, as always. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.